When you think of your basement, do you think, or <sighs> is it a safe haven for you and your family or an embarrassment? Do you have water on the floor or your walls? A musty smell you can't seem to escape? <laughs> Value Dry Waterproofing wants to give you peace of mind and help protect your home. Thinking about upgrading? Before you build that home gym or playroom for the kids, get your free inspection at ValueDryWaterproofing.com. That's ValueDryWaterproofing.com. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the The kingdom kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom, and we're happy this week to have our friend Darius Kamali in again from the Persian Version podcast. Also, he hosts a very successful uh, Facebook group, and he's an author. He's been on twice before. He's going to be on again also uh Pretty soon we're going to schedule him to do a sort of a, a, a different uh, viewpoint on the Kurdish people in answer to uh, a show that was on, I think, Garden Views. I'm not even really sure, but uh, on Kurdistan with Mike Hilliard. Um, so before we get too started in that, first, I want to uh, wish a happy birthday to my youngest son. I won't say his name so that uh, he doesn't get doxxed, but uh, happy birthday in case you're listening and happy birthday to Elvis. Um because uh, I think it's his birthday as well. Uh, Darius, how are you today? Happy birthday to Elvis. My gosh. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm, doing just, I'm doing just fine. Um, to the audience, uh, neither Darius nor I are at 100%. We will try to bring our A-games. Darius has been fighting a 
uh, element for over a week now, and he's he's mostly won his battle, but it's still lingering. I, in true uh, you know uh, Jekyll and Hyde form, last night was uh, embracing my Mister Hyde, and I was at an independent wrestling show in. Uh, Hamburg, Pennsylvania, which is about two hours away. Uh, and of course, I uh, got home late and was screaming and yelling and making a nuisance of myself as usual. So uh, I, I might be a little bit scratchy too, but today's episode is going to go to, well, what Darius's best specialty is, and that is all things Iranian, Persian folklore. He's made it very clear that Iran's always been the country. Persia, uh, Persia is a language, um, and and there's plenty of other peoples that were in those areas who are historically uh, significant as well. Um, I mean, everybody's significant, but uh, they made it into most everyone's history books or in, in you know in Bible studies the the, the Chaldeans, the Medes, the Medians, the uh, Parthians, of course. Uh, and of course, parts of uh, Babylon, or uh, you know, and Samaria, and all of the, all sorts of other fun stuff. So, I've talked a lot, Darius. How are you today? And and tell us uh, on this adventure you're going to take us on today. Good, good. Yeah. So, yeah, we had. Uh, I think you had noticed some um, posts on my Facebook group about mythological creatures. Absolutely, did. Iranian slash Persian or. or uh, Iranian mythological creatures, and you were very interested in those. And uh, of course, it would be ideal if one of these days either you or I do a, a YouTube so we can put up visuals. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll do my best to uh, give your audience an introduction to uh, Iranian mythology, mythology and mythological creatures. Um, uh, very superficial, of course, because this is a, a vast a galaxy, uh, a realm of. Uh, that encompasses multiple, you know, ethnicities and civilizations and eras. Um, so I'm only going to be hopefully wetting your audience's appetite. Yes, and that's good. This is like a 101 to 201 primer, yeah. you know, on heroes, folklore, and and yeah, the, the, this is not a substitute for full education. But like you said, wetting wetting their appetite and maybe introducing people to things they didn't know about, and maybe we'll even see some similarities with. Uh, you know, figures and archetypes from around the world. And uh, yeah. people can start, you know, seeing what I see in, in, you know, sort of comparative, I'll just say mythology just to keep it simple, but in, in all ologies, yeah. really. Well, I'm glad you you put it that way. I, in fact, I want to start with that is the, the, sort of the definition of mythology, right? Because sure. it's used differently. I'm using it in the sense that the late Joseph Campbell understood it, not as something that's false or incorrect, the way, uh, you know, often in popular parlance we say, well, that's not true, it's just a myth, right? right? Um, mythology, in the way I'm using the word, refers to stories, uh, parables, characters that actually convey spiritual or ethical or psychological truths. Um, so myth, in this sense, isn't inherently any less true than, let's say, poetry is less true than prose, right? It's another way of uh, communicating through parable, metaphor, so on and so forth. Absolutely. Um, having said that, um, Iranian mythology, so what is that? Uh, Persian mythology. Um, yeah, I know in the West those terms are used interchangeably, and, uh, you know, because that's become so common, I, I do the same oftentimes. Sure. Although, to be accurate, Persian mythology is a subset of Iranian mythology, and Iranian mythology is itself a branch of the larger Indo-European mythological family. Absolutely, right? yep. 
Um, and and that's where we have to situate it. And as such, it shares a lot of prime, primordial, you could say, features with other Indo-European cultures, including uh, the Vedic tradition of India uh, to its east, uh, as well as the, um, the, the Greco-Roman, Germanic, Slavic, Celtic traditions on the European side of that Indo-European ethno-linguistic cultural superfamily, you could say. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, but in addition to being part and parcel of that larger complex, uh, it is also, uh, it does certainly have some radically novel, uh, unique characteristics that set it apart from its uh, other cousins, either to the east or to the west. And uh, one of those uh, comes from, you know, what I call the Zoroastrian revolution, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Zoroastrian doctrine is radical uh, in a number of ways. And... Yeah, the, the, the first is, is that it proposes that the world that we live in is not a perfect preordained system in which the best that humans can do is to live in harmony and obedience with some fixed, fatalistic, predetermined order of things that's set up by God or gods or by nature or by fate, what's known as, you know, uh, perennial philosophy, it's called sometimes. Hmm. Instead, Zoroaster's message is actually the stark uh, opposite of that. Uh, it's, uh, it's an opposition to what he would consider the tyranny of the old fatalistic, uh, deterministic order and the so-called gods. Uh, very different than, you know, uh, uh, what the New Age movement would say that you need to be in harmony with. No, no, in, in Zoroaster's view, um, which permeates Iranian mythology, you need to perfect the world. You need to change and improve not only yourself, but the natural order of things. Um, so it's, it's, it's singular in that sense. Um, Zoroastrian, uh, uh, Zoroaster, I should say, in, inverts the Indo-European pantheon that was uh, prevalent in all of these Indo-European cultures, also even in Iranian culture itself prior to Zoroaster, in India, in all the European cultures, where... Uh, he champions the titans or Ashuras, Ahuras, uh, in the, as the Indians and the Iranians would call it, titans in the Greek version, uh, who are on the side of helping and empowering mankind over the devas or the gods who are bent on controlling and enslaving mankind. Uh, <clears throat> so you don't so much worship uh, Ahura Mazda, the god of Zoroastrianism, as uh, uh, he is really more like a friend. Uh, you can choose to join him in this struggle of good versus evil, 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 <laughs> evil, the evil, evil, the um, <laughs> good versus evil, or uh, or not. Uh, Ahura Mazda is not some anthropomorphized deity, but a but a very abstract metaphor for wisdom or knowledge itself. It's almost like the beginnings of of philosophy. Hmm. Um, in fact. Uh, there's a term in Zoroastrianism called Mazda Yasna. Uh, the word Mazda Yasna uh, in the ancient Avestan language uh, used uh, in the scriptures of Zoroastrianism, is very close to Sanskrit, by the way, um, is translated best as love of wisdom huh. in English. And so um, it's not a coincidence that you know Greeks began to use essentially the same word, philosophy, 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 which also means love of wisdom yep. while under Persian colonization, um, 
where certain Greek philosophers like Heraclitus, particularly, and Pythagoras were heavily influenced by Zoroastrian thought. And uh, in fact, uh, Pythagoras uh, studied for 12 years in Babylon, which was the capital of the Persian Empire in the time, with, with Zoroastrian magi. Another sort of uh, uh, very key theme that we're going to encounter uh, in order to understand these myths is, is dualism. Again, uh, Ahura Mazda versus Ahriman, which is sort of God versus the devil. Uh, Sepanta Minu, which represents progressive um, aspect of our psyche, if, if you want to talk about it in Jungian terms, um, versus Angra Minu, uh, the constricting aspect so on and so forth. In short, uh, good versus evil. And therefore, you know, Zoroastrianism allows for a more, you could say, cogent uh, notion of free will, um, something that would simply not be logically possible if God was both omniscient and omnipotent and, well, three things, and omnipresent. How could he allow for, e for, for, the problem, for evil to exist, right? Right. Well, Zoroastrianism sort of bypasses that because, well, God is not all-powerful. There's God and there's a devil, and you must choose between the two to help God win. <laughs> um, and the outcome depends on our, you know, collective choices. So it's, you know, within this context uh, and this sort of ethos that the mythological creatures, uh, whether the good ones or the bad ones, the heroes and the villains, of Iranian mythology have to be sort of situated and understood. Gotcha. Makes perfect uh, sense. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, uh, very uh, Star Wars in a way, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, for those of you who want to hear more about Zoroastrianism, uh, Darius actually did a great exposition on both Zoroastrianism and uh, Mithras, uh, which are tied together um, in uh, the episode on Garden of Doom called the Persian version. I think it's only fair also to mention that Darius has a podcast called the Persian version, which is why I got so clever with the name of my episode. Uh, so if you want even more details and more things uh, Persian and Persian related, you may want to check out his show, uh, which, uh, you know, you could, you could hear the whole catalog in one day if you wanted to, because I think there's about 15 Absolutely. episodes so it's easy to catch up on as well and very informative, uh, interesting stuff and varied as well. So thank you for that plug. Uh, of course. <laughs> there. And uh, I will, uh, uh, yeah, just a couple more words about this before getting into the creatures themselves. You know, uh, again, in this ethos or in this mythos, or whichever you want to call it, the job of humans then uh, is, is to take an imperfect world that contains, you know, copious amounts of both good and uh, not so good, uh, and not to learn to fatalistically accept it um, or be in harmony with it, as, you know, uh, hippies or new age people today would say. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying this, this is a different viewpoint. Sure. But to transform it um, and through our free conscious choices, actions of words, in fact, one of the, the sort of catchphrases of, of Zoroastrianism is good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And turn this sort of imperfect, uh, pardon my French, but shit show of a world <laughs> into something uh, that uh, in uh, Old Persian, the Old Persian language was called paradisia, 
which, as you can hear, is the source of uh, many of the Western uh, words, uh, uh, essentially meaning paradise. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a word that was translated into Greek. It went from paradisia to paradisa. It's, it's the same word. Uh, so we're all essentially heroes uh, of our own fate. Men and women um, are central heroes of their own stories. Uh, not here to worship gods, but to transform ourselves and transform nature itself into this concept of, of paradise. Um, so in, in a sense, it's both, I would say, existentialist. I know that's uh, anachronistic term, but it may be proto-existentialist in the sense that you have to choose. And it's utopian, right? Because it's all about improvement, both of yourself and of nature. Uh, rather than uh, uh, being in harmony with the sources. So now, where does you know Persian or Iranian mythology come from? Uh, many, many sources, of course. It's been influenced by a lot of groups around it and that have conquered it, that it's conquered, so on and so forth. But the two main sources are first the Zoroastrian texts, which include the Avesta, the Gathas, and the Bundahisht. And, and then the second source is, is much later. It's from the 10th century AD. It's the Shahnameh, which is translated as the Book of Kings or the Chronicle of Kings. And that is sort of the epic uh, poem. It's, it's the world's longest poem written by a single author. It's sort of what to, in the Iranian world, it, to the Iranian world, is equivalent of of Homer's Odyssey and Iliad, right. or what the Bhagavad Gita, you know, would be in the Indian side. And the Shahnameh is uh, has been described as sort of the 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 founding text um, of of Iranian civilization. And to give you a little context of what it is and what it's about and how it came to be, uh, Iran had been conquered by the Muslim Arabs in the seventh century, and was in great risk at great risk of disappearing from history altogether. It's Zoroastrian history, it's Indo-European ethos, and becoming uh, another so-called Arab country, just like Egypt became, uh, just like Syria and Iraq became, so on and so forth, all of North Africa. These are also cultures that predated Islam by, by millennia, but, but became um, absorbed into it, mostly because they adopted the religion and also they adopted the language, the Arabic language. Uh, Ferdowsi, the author of the Shahnameh, or Perdosi, his name is actually related to that same word, Paradija, oh. <laughs> um, uh, in a sense, uh, helped to both revitalize and preserve the pre-Islamic culture of Iran, and also uh, preserve the Persian language um, from disappearing. And to this day, that's probably why Iran is not an Arab country, it's not called an Arab country, whereas, let's say, Assyria or Lebanon, which also had their older traditions, are considered Arab countries because it never adopted the Arabic language. Right. And that was largely due to, due to this book, the Shahnameh, uh, again, the world's longest epic poem. And he went to great lengths to use uh, almost no Arabic loan words and, and, and revitalize the Persian language. So those are the two sources of uh, Iranian and Persian uh, myths. So what do these myths consist of? Uh, well, 
Uh, I want to talk about uh, a few different categories today. First off, dragons. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you like dragons, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, which are known uh, in the Iranian context as Aji Dahaka. Then there are Deeps. Uh, if that sounds like the word devil, that's not a coincidence. Devas, Deeps, these are all, again, Indo-European cognates. Nice. Uh, there's the Manticore. Um, then there are uh, something called the Paris in Persian, or Paris. Uh, if it sounds like fairies, again, no coincidence. Gotcha. The P and F, you know, are interchangeable. Yeah. Uh, Pater and, Pater and Father, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, same thing. And there is uh, there is a lot of gigantic sort of birds, but the two that I'll mention are Seamorg, the Seamorg bird, and the Homa bird. And then I'll also give you um, four or five examples of sort of humanoid heroes. One is Jamshid, one is Rostam, the other one is Kaveh the blacksmith. There's a, a very famous female one called Gordafarid. And uh, we'll end with Arash Kamangir because he shares my, my first name is actually Arash. Uh, Darius is my screen name. <laughs> oh, breaking news. Oh, I thought you knew. <laughs> I had mentioned it on the site before, but um, you, you yeah, probably I'm, have anyway. the the amount of things I forget on a daily basis would scare most people. <laughs> yeah, uh, when I when I write an article or in my books, I, I, I either put R Ash Darius Kamali or A Darius Kamali. Ah. Everyone who knows me knows what the A stands for. Gotcha. Okay, so the first one is the dragon or the uh, Ozzy Dahaka. And uh, the dragon is uh, uh, thought by some scholars to actually represent uh, Ahriman, the devil. Uh, it's often described as having three mouths, uh, six eyes, three heads. <laughs> uh, it's cunning, it's strong, it's demonic. Also has some human qualities, though. It's not just a beast, it's, it's intelligent. Right. Um, also appears in other Indo-European traditions, of course. Uh, in modern Persian, it's uh, the word is pronounced Ejdeha. Uh, in Armenian, it's Ajdahak. In uh, Tajik Persian, it's Ajdeha. In Urdu, it's Ajdeha again. In Kurdish, it's Ejdeha. <laughs> and in Slavic, which is um, not ironic, but it's uh, it's an Indo-European cousin, it's Ajdaja. Now, wasn't it like something like eight or ten thousand years ago? Enwi, the the twin. What is that? The, the... Wasn't wasn't the three headed snake with the you know three mouths, six eyes uh, that became the uh, that was like sort of the proto serpent dragon? Um, wasn't the like wasn't it like the the twin? Wasn't it like Enwi or so, so something like that? I hadn't heard that one, um, but uh, yeah. We're, we're... Is, do you know what is that from a Mesopotamian tradition? I th no, I think it's older. I think it's. Uh, I mean, well, I, listen. According to what what I remember, which you know, I'm already hitting the zeros, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm throwing all strikes here. Um, so no, no, I, I'm sure you're right. I just hadn't heard of it. Um, I, I think it's from sort of that sort of that region, you know, between the black and Caspian seas and into the, oh, yes, into yes. the steppes a little bit east of that, you know, into what I guess now is Kazakhstan. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about the Indo-Europeans again, the homeland yeah. of the, yeah, yeah. 
Um, these are the terms that I that I know, but it's probably exactly the same thing. Like there was yeah, Trito, the warrior, who had to defeat the Envy, the serpent, and called upon like the 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 thunder god to help or something like that. Yeah, no, no, this sounds absolutely part of the, the same Indo-European tradition. There's the dragons, and uh, there's you know the sky father, you know, in the Greek version becomes mm -hmm. Zeus, Indra, and the Indian. Yeah, but so the dragon is is sort of uh, an essential part of not just Iranian mythology. But as I mentioned at the beginning, Iranian is is a part of the larger Indo-European culture complex, and it seems to be uh, prevalent throughout, from the westernmost regions of Europe all the way through to, to North India. And <laughs> as you see, even the excuse me, even the uh, the names, at least in the Iranian realm, are, are very similar to each other. And there's also, you know, uh, we we actually talked about this very br briefly in one of our uh, previous conversations, uh, there's the dragon uh, banner. The, the Aji Dahaka is also a war banner mm. that was carried by the Scythians and Sarmatians when they went into war. Um, and and it, to, the, to the extent that uh, it was associated, the dra they, were, they were sometimes called the dragon people. It's possibly because they wore green and had scale armor, but it's also possibly because they carried this dragon banner. Or both. Well, yeah. And there's also a, a dinosaur family um, <laughs> that's named after this Ajidahaka. Uh, it's called, let's see if I can pronounce it here, the Ajdarkid group of pterosaurs are named after the Ajidahaka, the Ajdarkid. Ah, well, that seems right. We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. I'm sure they looked very similar. Yeah, probably. Uh, there's so. other, you know, dragons also in the Iranian tradition. Let's see if, uh, if any of these are the ones you talked about. Um, there's the Aziz Shruvara, which is a horned dragon. There's the Aziz Zarita, which is a yellow dragon. Ooh. Um, yeah, I don't know what power the yellow dragon has that's different than the others. But the Aziz Rosita, the red dragon. <laughs> um, Aziz Visapa, which is a poisonous dragon. Um, and uh, there's a dragon, I like this one, called Vurukasha, which is a dragon that can swallow 12 provinces at once. Ah, and well, there's that, there's that number 12 again. And I don't know what's special about the colors either, but, I mean, it, it, it might be important or related to if you go just a little bit further east into, you know, uh, you know Chinese and other tr traditions there, there's... You know, there's the five dragons and they all have different colors or the four dragons and they all have different colors. And it's, you know, very relevant there. Uh, and the dragons are, you know, they, they, you know, are viewed probably different there than they, well, definitely different. And luckily enough, we have uh, a show on that on Chinese magic and mythology, which are actually one and the same. Um, and so you can check that out too. But uh, it's interesting. I, you know, this, this is, these are the kind of connections because... I mean, we really don't know what came first and who came first and who went where. I mean, we think we do, but that, that's constantly, that, that's always changing. 
ever shifting. Yeah. Yes. I was going to say, uh, you know, uh, apparently uh, diversity was important in the dragon world as well. Yeah, of course but, it is. Eh? <laughs> That's right. Dragon lives matter. Dragon life. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Okay, so that's that's the, the dragons are, are an enormous part of Iranic uh, mythology and uh, and of Indo-European mythology as a whole. Uh, then you have something uh, another class of creatures. Wait, before we go ahead, do you go think ahead. do you think that the dragon being so associated with the Sarmatians and the Scythians and that they were sort of knocking on the door of you know the Proto-Europeans and the Europeans might be why you have so much imagery of Christianity defeating the dragon? Uh, you know, that might be the origin of that? Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. Well, I, I think that those medieval European cultures were part of this Indo-European uh, complex, of course, long before Christianity came. And and so uh, it, it was it was infused into, you know, their, their different cultures in a sense. Um, but uh, in the medieval period, you have... In fact, I'll get to that in, in the section I'm about to talk to where Perfect. there's a specific creature called the manticore, which appears in medieval bestiaries yeah. all the time. Right. Uh, and, and we think it, it may have to do either specifically with the Sarmatian Scythians or, or just more broadly with the, with the Celtic Germanic version of the, the same Indo-European tradition. Yeah, and I, I, I want to uh, let everyone like know. Said, they're, they're, whether Which one came first? It's a constant battle. You know, it has to do with current politics and current net various nationalisms, but it seems like they're all, you know, ultimately from the same source here. That's cool. And I, and I just want to let the audience know, I always get manticores and basilics confused, so <laughs> it, I'm just like, if, if I get a trait, you know, if I interrupt or interject and, and get a trait wrong with one, I that that's just me being me. Perfect. Uh, so now there's the, the another class of creatures called the Deves, or similar to the word devas on the Indian side or devils on the European side. Right. Uh, they have, they, they are not dragons there. They have, they look sort of human. They look like a human, but they're gigantic. They're large, you know, 12 foot tall sort of humanoids with, but with two horns mm -hmm. on their heads, uh, teeth like tusks of a boar. Okay. Said. Uh, they're powerful. They're cruel. They're, uh, you know, they're cold hearted. Uh, they have a particular relish uh, for the taste of human flesh. Of course. And uh, uh, some of them use sort of primitive weapons like stones and clubs, and others are pictured, you know, with sophisticated armor, you know, uh, wearing full-on chain mail or scale mail like uh, some sort of Persian or Parthian or Scythian knight. Um, and um, they're, uh, despite their, I guess you could say, uncouth appearance, and in, in addition to their physical strength, uh, some of them are sorcerers. So they know how to, some of them know how to use magic. It's not just uh, brute strength and they can afflict their victims with um, horrific nightmares. What are their origins? Are they, are they just, they, you know, always been here like the dragons were always here? Or did the, is, are they like a, like a Nephila Mananaki kind of story that they're sort of uh, offspring of humans and gods gone wrong? In the Iranian tradition, there's a theory that with Zoroaster inverting the Indo-Iranian pantheon, turning it on its head, the devas in the Indic side are gods. They're not evil creatures. So it's like Zoroaster turning it around just to give them a, a middle finger and say, we're going to turn your devas into demons. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
but I don't think it's just for no reason either. It's just, it's the it's the Zoroastrian ethos that these gods that want us to worship them are are sort of the demiurge. They're not uh, they're they're here to oppress us, and uh, instead we should side with the Titans or the Ashuras, who are here to empower humanity um, with wisdom and knowledge and techne and very um, to use Dr. Giorgiani's uh, uh, phraseology on this. Um, uh, very, um, uh, uh, what's the term? Well, the, the Greek term of uh, the god uh, that brings fire to mankind and knowledge. No, Prometheus. Promethean. Yeah, yeah, very Promethean yeah. in that sense. Different word, but the same sort of concept. Very cool. Now, uh, these Deves, of course, I mentioned how powerful they are, but they are not, they're not invincible. They can be defeated by the right hero or the right sorcerer, it just is difficult. Like the Wendigo. Yeah. Uh, these legends of Deeds also spread into some of the other sort of Iranian-influenced regions, like Armenia, of course, and the Turkic countries. Like the Turkic peoples came later from Mongolia. Uh, they also adopted this sort of whole cloth. Also in the Balkans, particularly in Croatia and in um, Albania, they have they have Deeds as well, with slightly different pronunciation. Oh, excellent. Uh, also, after the coming of Islam um, in uh, the 7th century, uh, they were also adopted or integrated into Islamic lore too, although they, they weren't originally part of, of, of that culture. Now, you mentioned the Manticore. I mentioned, we both mentioned the Manticore. Manticore is a, another creature. It's a legendary uh, Persian beast, sort of similar to the Egyptian Sphinx. Okay. Uh, the Manticore is said to have... Um, the head of a human, the body of a, a lion, and a venomous tail of a scorpion. Ah. So try to picture that. Uh, <laughs> and interestingly, uh, the Iranian magic were proliferated all over European medieval art uh, because maybe of the influence of the North Iranian Sarmatians, Scythians, the Alans, Roxalans, we talked about those people previously who settled you know, Europe during the decline and fall of the Western Roman Empire. And uh, there's actually one very interesting, if you look these up, and you, uh, in, they're all over the European bestiaries, are called, which are sort of uh, fanciful encyclopedias of mythological creatures. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. And there's one very interesting picture of a magic orb wearing a, what's called a Phrygian cap, <laughs> which is particularly interesting because... Um, uh, some of your listeners may recall from uh, our previous conversations, the Phrygian cap was always associated with Parthians right. and Iranians in Roman arts and then later European art. So it's interesting that they, uh, even even though this is this is a, a fanciful creature, they knew where it was coming from, so they gave it an Iranian hat. Right. Where and, but, uh, and but Phrygia is like in the Balkans somewhere, it's right? In the Balkans, yes. Yeah. But the, the Phrygians at the time were. Part and parcel of the Sarmatian part culture. Right, it was the same hats, but the, so the yeah, Europeans gave it the European name. Yeah, and so the, during this time, the Iranian world was ruled by Parthians, who are who are Scythians, right. not by Persians. So it, it's complicated, but large, broadly speaking, they're all uh, Iranic. So now, you know, having uh, talked about uh, some of these evil types of creatures, deeves and, and dragons and, and manticore. Uh, there's a, a, a good class of creatures called, uh, in Persian it would be pronounced Pari, 
uh, or Perry. Uh, these are good creatures, uh, by and large. They're, they're, um, they're essentially good, although they can be uh, a little mischievous. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're, they're described as being exquisite, uh, winged spirits renowned for their beauty. Uh, they're described as, uh, like I said, mischievous, uh, having been denied entry into paradise or paradise until they've completed some penance uh, to atone for some sort of, you know, sins that they may or may not have committed. So they're but, not um, exactly uh, mischievous angels, though. Maybe they're more like uh, your, your your sprites or your fairies that. Uh, it's you know, exactly. That's that's what they are. That are <laughs> They're friend. They're friendly, but uh, they have strange uh, senses of humor. Like breaks on you, yeah, right. something like that. <laughs> in in fairness, they have an entirely different frame of reference. You know, being a uh, supernatural, preternatural creature. That's right. You know, it's, they don't share our our, our exact uh, morality here. Right. Uh, and the parallels, obviously, you can hear in the word is the European side uh, in European culture family is the fairies, mm -hmm. fairies and fairies. In fact. The word may have entered the European languages through Ottoman Turkish and Romanized as Perry. Now, uh, there's a, a couple specific examples in the European side uh, that I'll mention. One of is uh, one of them is called the Swan Maiden, where the human in this in this particular story, the human male hides the Perry's wings and marries her. Uh -huh. Yeah, and. Um, there's also a work known as Paradise and the Peri by Thomas Moore, uh, based on these uh, Persian spirits. Well, Thomas Moore is a pretty well-known guy. Oh yeah, no, he is. Uh, he's uh, he's a good. Uh, I think both a critic and a poet. Something like that. Yeah, he's, he's and wasn't he on the the good side and the bad side of uh, some kings? <laughs> yeah, who was it, right? Yeah, about um, true. <laughs> and then um, uh, me, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, they also entered into the world of Islam again after the coming of Islam. Uh, Peris were adopted by the Arabic and Muslim world as well, where they were known as kind and benevolent beings. In contrast to the mischievous uh, jinn or genies, right. Um, which were already present in the Arabic world. Uh, at some point, well, I, I'm not going to talk at all about the Thousand and One Nights War here because it's 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 slightly different. It comes partly from the Arabic world and the Indian, but it, it's so complex that it's its own. We can have another conversation about it there. Well, consider consider it done. Excellent. Yeah, you know Aladdin and sure. Baba and uh, all of. All of that stuff that we've all grown up with. Yeah, well, that's all. I mean, you know, a thousand and one Arabian Nights is, is way pre-Islamic. Oh yeah, exactly. The the stories. That's the thing. Is they. Say, you got me talking about it. I'll say. I'll say one thing about it, but I won't get too deep on it. Is that uh, it's it, they are they came to be known as the Arabian Nights in Europe because they were brought to Europe by the Arabs. Right. But they themselves, uh, the Arabs. Um, compiled a lot of these stories from previous Indian, Persian, Jewish, Mesopotamian, 
uh, even Greek, even some Turkic stories. So it's it's very very cosmopolitan. Yeah, that 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 sort of Mediterranean circle was you know uh, you can you know there's about a million different peoples from there because they all were named after their towns and cities and other things. But right. but there's a ton of overlap there. And for those of you who are who are very religious, especially very re- religious Muslims, I I understand that nothing's pre-Islamic because. Allah was always God, and then all of that. I'm just saying, when 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 people were enlightened and realized that that the message came from Allah, uh, you know, when they when they gave it a name, not not that it didn't exist before. Yeah, no, it's interesting. People who are come from, uh, I, I don't want to get you killed here, but, <laughs> but, but uh, I wish my show was important enough to get me killed. <laughs> people who are uh, very, I guess the word is fundamentalist within their own traditions. Um, have a hard time accepting that, uh, you know, some of those elements came from traditions prior to or outside of. Right. Uh, you know, to me... It, you know, we'll say, we'll say pre-Muhammad, because that's pretty much agreed upon that that was around the 7th century AD. I mean, you know, so... Yeah. Yeah, to me, you know, it doesn't even take away from the from the psychological truth of something. It, in fact, it adds to it if you know that other cultures have come to the same thing, you know? Um, so, but anyway, we will, we'll leave I'll, that aside. Yeah, I'll buy that you know, for a dollar. Two levels of analysis, right? The people usually from within a, uh, a tradition who try to interpret things by within their own narrative. And then there's the secular outside historian who comes in and wreaks havoc. Yes, of course. So, all right. So enough of the, the parries or fairies. And uh, let's, uh, I'll tell you about a couple of giant birds. Yes. The Seamorg and the Homa birds. So the Seamorg, uh, also known as the, the dog bird, mm-hmm. was an enormous winged, winged creature with uh, the head of a dog, a body of a peacock, claws of a lion. Okay. Uh, sometimes also imagined with a human face on top of all of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm losing track of my mental image at this point. <laughs> yeah. The Seymour lived uh, high in the Alborz mountain range, which is uh, in northern Iran, bordering the, the southern coast of the Caspian Sea. Okay, I was just about to ask that. <laughs> yeah, and um, Tehran kind of actually uh, is on the foothills, the southern foothills of the Alborz mountain range. If you go over the range, you're suddenly in the Caspian Sea. Gotcha. So Seymour lives... Uh, um, uh, in that region, lives for about 1,700 years, it said. Oh. It's said uh, until um, it gets old eventually and dives into a fire of its own creation, Okay. only to rise again. Ah, sounds familiar. Like, like, yes, like the later what? The Phoenix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was um, either derived from it or both of them derive, are derived from an even older proto-Indo-European tradition, we're not sure. Right. But clearly, it's, it's, it's the same bird with some cultural variations. I wonder if there's a comet that, that appears every 1,700 years or something like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, like uh, Halley's Comets sort of thing, but every 1,700 years. Yeah. I mean, there's probably not. And I mean, I don't know if there's been humans tracking these things long enough to know that's a pretty long timetable. But I don't yeah. know. Some of those ancient cultures, I mean, they, I... I, I don't know how they track these things, but they did. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. Um, I I am beginning to become more and more 
uh, going down the rabbit hole myself, <laughs> watching enough YouTube videos of Atlantean stuff, so on and so forth. I sort of cut my teeth on and grew up on very sort of abstract uh, interpretations of mythology by Joseph Campbell sure. and of history by Will Durant, so on and so forth, where everything is sort of interpreted as has your own psyche. And while I still appreciate that, I'm beginning to think there might be actually more physical truth to some of these things. Sure. You know, more great Watch historical this. truth, which would make it extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> Seymour possesses a lot of uh, great wisdom, uh, features prominently in a story of the hero Zal, who raised Rostam, the greatest of all Iranian heroes, we'll get to uh, actually shortly. And then there's the, another bird um, called the Homa bird. The Homa bird is a later version of the Seymour, apparently, uh, said to fly eternally over the earth, never lands. So it, it sleeps up there, does whatever you know the Homa bird does up in the sky um, for its entire life. And it, if its shadow falls on, uh, on an individual, that person's blessed. Oh and will have nothing but happiness uh, for the rest of their lives. And But conversely, if you injure it, or even attempt to injure it, or if you even think about attempting to injure it, uh, you'll die in 40 days. Oh, 40. Well, there, 40 there's, that's, a, that's a common number as well. Um, yeah, very biblical. Yeah. What, what does that, well, pre-biblical, obviously. Uh, anyway, what, is, what, are the, what are the physical attributes of the bird, or is it just a giant bird? Um, on this one, I don't know if it looks any different than the Seymour, but I might be wrong. So it might have a dog head with a human face and a peacock body and all yeah, that. Yeah, the, 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 the Seymour had all those things, and, and the Homa, um, you know, the, when I see, because there's a lot of artwork in Iranian and Persian literature that depicts these things, and it, they're depicted differently all the time, depending on the era. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a depiction with all... All, you know, with the human face and all those things, but they're they're sort of always a gigantic bird with with some of the characteristics of other creatures. Now, sort of a one day a I'm going to do a show about peacocks and just like the imagery of peacocks in different cultures because the peacock, I mean, obviously it's a pretty distinct looking animal. It doesn't seem to be afraid of people. You know, the the, the cock version at least is beautiful, and you know the the feathers look like eyes. So I mean, you know, there's there's you know. Uh, some obvious things, but the, the, you know, peacock is like everywhere. And, uh, I actually, um, uh, one of our, another, one of our, uh, repeating guests, Andrew Goff, uh, I was going to task him with that, but he, he picked Tartarian instead. And then I, I certainly can't turn away Tartarian <laughs> for, for peacock uh, imagery, but no, you can't do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, the peacock is a very interesting bird, and it, how funny that it's the male that um, it's showing off. That's that's common with with birds, in fact. Animals, most animals. It's it's most uh, animals. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, the Homa uh, was uh, responsible for, uh, or came to be known as sort of associated with legitimizing kingship as well. There are sculptures of the Homa, by the way, giant sculptures all over Persepolis, the ceremonial capital of the the first Persian Empire. Uh, if you ever look them up, it's, it's quite impressive. In fact, uh, uh, oh, also I should mention, it, it also came to symbolize the concept of sort of elevation of mind or enlightenment, you could say. Sure. And uh, Like an ohm. Like Seymour. Go ahead. Like an ohm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like Seymour in the later Phoenix, the Homer was uh, thought to live an immensely long life. And again, uh, like the, the other two, it, it dies in its own flames and gives birth or rebirth to itself. So it's not like the Midgard serpent. It, it, it does have a life cycle. It has a life cycle. Uh, uh, very long, obviously. Besides Ragnarok. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. By, by the way, it's also the symbol of uh, Iran Airlines. <laughs> it's a very cool logo uh, if you ever check it out. And I'm always, we Iranians who are sort of against the, the current regime there are, are are very, well, I guess we're, we're happy about it, but we're surprised that it hasn't been replaced because it's clearly a pre-Islamic, what they would consider a pagan symbol. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's, uh, I'm glad that they haven't replaced it because it's a beautiful symbol. You know, this is probably not the exactly the right show for it, but you would probably know better than anyone else that I know. Like, uh, this is January 8th, and there was a lot of coverage about what was going on in, in Iran for a while. It seems to sort of simmer down some. Um, is is there still a lot of civil unrest? Is, is What's going oh, on yes. there? Yeah, no, it's, um, listen, it, it'll die down and go up in, in here. It's, it's whack-a-mole, right? The, the, I don't know when exactly anyone who claims to know uh is is fantasizing this regime will fall and how it will how will that will come to be hopefully in an as non-violent a way as possible of course but i will tell you um having grown up in this culture that as a culture as a civilization iran is done with islam not just the islamic republic uh at least uh, absolutely done with the notion of a theocracy right uh, you know, if you want to practice your religion uh, in the privacy of your own home, that's fine. But especially the younger generation, uh, when uh, any sort of uh, surveys that have been done, despite the fact that the, it, you know, you're taking a risk when you're answering a survey. Of course. Despite all that, the the majority of Iranians consider themselves non-religious. Right, secular. Yeah, secular, and not in fact more than secular in a political sense that we're. They actually don't. They're not religious. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been hearing polls like that. I don't know, go probably two or three decades now. Yeah, uh, more and more so. And so, in a sense, maybe civilizationally, uh, you know, they say, "What's that old expression about?" They asked someone in the early 20th century, "What do you think about the French Revolution?" He said, "It's you know, too early to tell." <laughs> <laughs> so maybe the same thing here is that as 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 destructive as this revolution has been and the war and the sanctions and so on and so forth and all that's come from it that maybe civilizationally Iran had to go through that um, some have said that but in any case I don't know what will happen with these particular set of protests but um, uh, I think Iran civilizationally is over theocracy and to a large extent over uh, the, the religion that was imposed on it in a sense by the sword Stand strong and tall, season after season. America's alfalfa is your source for the only traffic-tested alfalfa seed and the Harvextra and Roundup Ready alfalfa technologies you need. Selected for yield and quality characteristics, our varieties produce agronomically sound and disease and pest-resistant alfalfa that can work across the country. Dream fields and yields start here in the United States of alfalfa. Contact your America's alfalfa seed dealer for more information. The, is it morning yet, deal. 
How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Uh, 1,300 years ago. Yeah, well, okay. That's that's my my, um, view of it. Yeah, A, I didn't mean to really put you on the spot, but I figured, you know, it it can enlighten us a little bit. B, for I said it's January 8th, but I don't know if I said the year. It's 2023. This is a podcast, so people could listen to it, be listening to us in 30 years and go, what's he talking about? Um, (laughs) Or why is he talking about it now? Yeah, and and see, I wish I was clever enough to come up with things like it's too too early to tell. You know, a hundred and ten years later. I mean, you know, that sounds like something William F. Buckley would say or something. But uh, right, right. But I'm not. Yeah, so so, <laughs> so back back to monsters, or uh, well, not monsters, but supernatural <laughs> beings. Maybe, well, you know. So now, in fact, speaking of supernatural, I want to. Uh, you have a good sense of between the dragons and the deeps and the birds and the Manticore. Yep. Uh, of the creatures. Uh, now, I want to mention for the the third part, final part of, a, of our talk here, a few humanoid uh, mythological beings. Sure. One of them is, um, we'll start with, and again, uh, for this, I hope I'm not repeating myself here, but I'm just giving you, I'm scratching the surface of Iranian mythology. It's one of the world's large civilizations and has a an extremely complex and deep and wide kind of mythological galaxy. So uh, hopefully um, this is, will be just enough for people to to uh, go to Google and look up things and buy some books and and, and watch the videos uh, on their own if they're interested. Well, you working on the Iranian cinematic universe? Yeah, well, in fact, I'll mention that at the end. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> so... I want to mention uh, uh, one of these heroes, mythological heroes, is named, and when I say mythological, it may be semi-historical, we're not sure, in primordial times. His name is Jamshid, or sometimes Yamshid, uh, if the J is pronounced, uh, is is silent. So Jamshid appears in both the Zoroastrian scriptures and also in the later Shahnameh, that epic Mm -hmm. poem that I mentioned. right. Jamshid is in the Shahnameh. He's the fourth king of the world of the uh, uh, of the world. Actually, uh, I was going to say of Iran, but in, in the Iranian mythology, it's of the world. Sure. He commands all the angels and all the demons, and he serves both as uh, the Shah and also the high priest. And Jamshid is is responsible for a number of inventions and discoveries. Uh, He's credited with manufacturing arms and weapons, um, weaving and dyeing, uh, clothes, linen, silk, wool, uh, building materials, uh, mining, jewels, precious metals. He's uh, said to have uh, invented perfumes, as well as the art of medicine. Okay. The man got around. Right, so Um, he's like all of the uh, characters in the song uh, Atlantis by Donovan. He's like all the twelve. I haven't heard that one. I know Donovan, but I haven't heard that song. Oh, it's great. I'll have to, I'll have to check that out after after the show. Um, yeah, the art of medicine and, and navigation, sailing ships, and music. Oh, and uh, last but not least, he's credited with discovering, or I don't know if you invent wine or you discover it, 
but uh, wine. <laughs> oh, so he, he is a one-man pantheon of gods. He's a one-man, all the attributes of Ad Atlanteans or any other root culture that spread all of everything that's worthwhile to the, to the world or the, you know, the Masonic right. tradition, you know, all, all of the useful stuff. Or the That's stuff right. that made us... All, all these basic, most important things. And it tells you what they considered most important things in civilization, or wine is one of them. Music That's is another. Cool. That's yeah. good. I, I should start drinking again. What's wrong with me? Exactly. And uh, so we don't know um, if that actually happened, but it is interesting, I will say, uh, going to actual history now, that the oldest traces of wine in the world that have so far been discovered are in two places. One is in Ron itself. And, and the other is in the Caucasus, which in, in ancient times was the homeland of the Uranic Sarmatians. Okay, there you go. So we have traces of wine, but so it, it, who knows? Maybe it was Jamshi. So, so are you saying that the Italians and the French and now Californians oh, are Absolutely. culturally appropriating the, 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 the vintnering of wine? Those wannabes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah. or, or is like in, in, in when you go down the rabbit hole of the Atlantis YouTubes, everything was done by dun -dun -dun, the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, yeah. Yes. Well, the Phoenicians, you know, were great seafarers. They transported a lot of these things. Sure, right, yeah. And, okay, so Jamshid, um, in, in addition to doing all of these things, he also had a flying throne. Nice. He sat on a jewel-studded uh, flying throne. Uh, carried by who? By the Deves, who I mentioned before. Ah. Um, who uh, serve him and they raise his throne into the air and fly him through the sky. Very nice. Um, if that's not enough, Jamshid also has a seven ringed cup. And it's not just a cup, but this cup has both the elixir of immortality in it and also allows him, when he looks into it, to observe. The entire universe. You know, this might explain why Thor's chariot was was drawn by goats because the Deves sort of had those those horns as opposed to horses. Because certainly the origins of Thor being Indo-European, <laughs> they knew what horses were yeah. and knew that they were better at, at, at carrying a, a chariot than a than a goat would be. But uh, maybe yeah, it and came the from that. Were unavailable too. You know, Jamshid had them. So yeah, no, that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so he, he, he in this Jamshid, Jamshid's cup, he, it's the elixir of immortality, and it gives him uh, the ability of, I guess you could say, remote viewing. It's very Graalian. Very, absolutely. No, that's, that's an absolute um, real connection there. Now, again, whether it, one of them comes directly from the other or both of them, let me put you on mute for a second until this fire truck goes Yeah, by. I hear that. We're glad to know it's not his home. I, li I live in the city, and uh, it's not quite as bad as Manhattan, but it's it's, it's almost. <laughs> so, what were you saying? Oh, we were so rudely interrupted. By oh, the I was just letting the audience that we're glad to know it's not your home that, that they're responding to. <laughs> yeah, no, no, hopefully. Yeah, we were on Gralian. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, or, or whether they both stem from their common, you know, proto-Indo-European uh, who knows, but they're clearly a part and parcel of the same same complex here. Sure. Um, speaking of Jamshid, I also want to mention a concept which is very important in Iranian sort of ethos, mythos, mythology. The concept of far, F-A-R-R, -R, it's often spelled. 
uh, which is sort of similar to the concept of divine grace, which you hear about in Christianity later, right? Um, and so Jamshid has this concept, uh, this 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 divine grace bestowed upon him for most of his reign, but then he becomes a little bit too full of himself and begins boasting too much about how everything comes from him, ah, no one else. The pride. And yes, the pride before the fall, right? Uh, and so this concept of far uh, leaves him, and he, he comes to a rather bad end, but I won't get into the details. Right. So uh, Jamshid also, by the way, uh, invented um, Noruz, which is the Iranian New Year. Oh, okay. It's uh, on the first of spring, and throughout the Iranian world, it's, uh, uh, it's the biggest holiday in the Iranian world, from the Tajikistan to the Caucasus to the Balkans. It's... It's claimed by many countries. It's, um, UNESCO has it registered under uh, uh, many joint countries uh, who, who celebrate it. And according to Iranian mythology, that tradition goes back to Jamshid. Is there a fixed date in, I can't remember if we're on a Gregorian or a Juliana calendar, or is it sort of like the Jewish holidays where it's different every year? Yeah, it's sort of like the Jewish holidays in the sense because it's, it's the beginning of spring, and so the hour changes ah. um, it, it's usually around the 21st of March but this specific exact moment uh, uh, changes okay I was gonna that try I was just wondering if it had anything to do with uh, you know tied into uh, his you know the original Jesus birthday oh interesting well no, that's the birth of Mithra right right so yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, the birth of Mithra is around the this winter solstice, which we talked about before. But this beginning of spring. So the Indo-Europeans and the Iranians specifically, but Indo-Europeans generally, uh, celebrated sort of the beginning of each 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 of the seasons, uh, the different equinoxes and solstices. Right. Sure. Um, and but the one that's still celebrated, you know, most prominently throughout the Iranian world is. Is the beginning of spring, which is considered, and that's a good time, you know, to to call the beginning of the new year because winter is coming to an end, and now you have the flowering of spring. Sure. So it, it's just logical. Absolutely. And now I've got to do the same disclaimer I did before to everyone who is a devout Christian. I I, I know that Jesus was always there, and and uh, and then that the 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 name just came later, and the then the you know and identifying. So we're just talking about. Uh, you know, dates going with the story, not the not that uh, God was not eternal. The God of the Christians and the, all the Abrahamic religions was not eternal. We just we just put names to it later. So that's that's my caveat. I, I can I, I can't imagine I'm going to walk into this many more times this show, but you never know. If anyone can do it, it's me. Sure. Um, I'm like Tom Cat. I'll step on rakes and hose and and things, and then you know the wood shaft will keep hitting me in the head. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I'm a dangerous host or a guest, I should say. <laughs> I get you into a lot of trouble with the. Yeah, no, I, I, I can take care of this on my own. Don't worry, it's not you. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> okay, I'll mention one last thing before we get off of Jamshid. Is that Persepolis, the ceremonial capital of the Persian Empire, the first Persian Empire, uh, is often called or referred to uh, in popular. Uh, parlance or culture as Takht Jamshid by the Iranians themselves, meaning the throne of Jamshid. Okay. 
And so scholars, Western scholars, oh, these you know, silly Iranians, they they forgot that this was actually a historic. It was built by the historic sires and areas. They think it's built by this legendary Jamshi. Well, no, 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 that's not what happened. We, the Iranians knew who it was built by, but uh, Persepolis was also the site where the New Year celebrations were held each year. Right. It was sort of its primary function. In fact, in the sculptural friezes that you see all across Persepolis, you see them bringing the, the New Year's gifts, including wheatgrass and such. And so that's why, you know, in the popular culture, it's called the Throne of Jamshid because of its association with the New Year. But uh, also, I thought I thought that's the last thing I'm going to say about Jamshid. But if you know the, the poem, the poet Omar Khayyam, the mathematician, astronomer, uh, 12th century Persian poet Omar Khayyam and his Rubaiyat, uh, one of the most famous po poets in the world, uh, was all, even the most famous poet in the English language for a time period in the late 19th century when he was translated by Fitzgerald, uh, has a couple of little short poems that reference Jamshid. They're four lines, so I'd like to read them here. Can you still hear me? You're on. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. One of them says, the lion and the lizard keep. Sorry, the, they say the lion and the lizard keep. The courts where Jamshid gloried and drank deep. And Bahram, the great hunter, the wild ass stomps o'er his head, but he cannot break his sleep. And the second one is, Iran indeed is gone with all its rose, and Jamshid's seven-ringed cup where no one knows. But still the vine her ancient ruby yields and still a garden by the water blows. So very sort of romantic era. <laughs> yes, gardens by the water, the whole thing. Yeah. There's a Norse equivalent, apparently, too, to Jamshid, uh, at least according to some scholars, like uh, a gentleman named Ottinger, who claims that Jamshid, uh, which again can also be pronounced as Yamshid, is the equivalent of the Norse god Ymir. Oh, okay. So, there's that. Now, the second um, uh, hero that I want to speak about is Rostam. Yes. Rostam is um, maybe the quintessential Iranian hero in, in, in Persian Iranian mythology. He's sort of the equivalent of, of Hercules. Yeah, Rostam I've heard of before we started on this endeavor. Really? You knew? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a famous poem. Well, I'll get to that in a moment. In the English language, too, that it's based on. So I wonder if that, that was where you heard of it. Probably. So Rostam is um, he, he's said to have the strength of several elephants. Of course. He's loyal to the Persian throne, but often on his own terms. He's sort of a wild man who comes in and helps reluctantly, but then goes and does his own thing. He can't, he's not fully under the control of the Shahs. Like a Beowulf kind of type. A little bit, yeah. Very similar in that way. Uh, by the way, when we speak of Rostam, uh, almost always in the same phrase is Rostam and Rash. Rash is his horse. Oh, okay. His, his steed. You know, and Rash is a hero in his own right, you oh. know, and uh, he's actually the only horse in the world who's strong enough to carry Rostam. Oh, well, good. It's good they found <laughs> right. each other. They found each other, and they're, they're, they're a team. They, they're, they face demons and deeves together and so on and so forth. I mean, imagine if they Rost didn't. <laughs> Rostam has, um, 
as the seven labors that he's associated with, oh. similar to Hercules. Uh, yep. In Hercules, it's nine labors. Rostam is seven. And, uh, you know, uh, I won't get into them in detail, but uh, they include fighting various thieves, uh, sorcerers, you know, surviving the desert heat, surviving uh, Arctic temperatures, uh, all these sorts of um, temptations and so on and so forth. It's amazing and, they uh, knew what Arctic temperatures were. I mean, I guess it isn't amazing, but still, you know, how often well, did it get cold? Well, very cold. You keep in mind, people, first of all, even in Iran today, it's, it's, it is a mountainous country with extremely cold climates. But the Iran of the day, we're talking about Scythian lands that are Central Asia. So oh, it's, right. it's as far it's as far north as, you know, as Canada. Right. Look at, look at the Russian tanks bogged down in the snow right now in, in Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. Ukraine, yeah. So if, if the Ukraine and between north of the Black Sea and north of the Caspian Sea is the area we're talking about, that's about as, and these are, these are plains, right? So it's as cold as it gets. Um, well, I'll actually come back to that in a moment. And of course, so, uh, in, in the journeys, they're, they're, they're ancestors and probably still, you know, missions and whatever, embassies, uh, you know, went through the Himalayas and the, and the, you know, all the various mountain ranges there. So, yeah. yeah so well, the Urals, the Urals in this case would be the, big, uh, the, the, the Caucasus mountains, the Alborz mountains, the Ural mountains uh, are sort of the, where these people lived. Yeah. So it was, just, that was just me being a big dummy. Okay. No, no, it's no, no. I'm glad you brought it up because a lot of people will associate Iran with um, a, like a hot Middle Eastern country. Uh, it, it has big deserts. It has very severe deserts, but it also has lush valleys and forests and has mountain ranges. And again, um, the, the Iranian world that we're talking about in ancient times is much vaster than that and includes parts of what today is the Caucasus and Ukraine and Russia and the stands. Right. It's more like North Texas than it is like uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, no. In fact, much of parts of it again, parts of it is like are like Canada. <laughs> <Jeff. Ooh. laughs> yeah, yeah. We're talking about north of the Black Sea. This is this is this is cold, cold country. And okay. if you look on a map, it's it's about as 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 far north as northern United States, southern Canada. All right, there we go. Yeah, amazing. Um, but um, so. <clears throat> Uh, there's a lot of similarity between one of these, one of these uh, labors, as they're called, the seven labors, and the story of Percival, you know, in the Arthurian tradition. Yep. And in fact, the Grail Temple is very strongly reminiscent in its description to an actual Iranian site called Azar Goshtasp, which is a, a Zoroastrian or maybe even pre-Zoroastrian Mithraic. Indo-European temple in northwest Iran, in the province of Azerbaijan. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as the throne of Solomon today, but that's a much later um, misnomer. Uh, after Islam, they tried to sort of make everything biblical so they wouldn't destroy it, but it actually has nothing to do with the biblical tradition. It's a it's a Mithraic Zoroastrian Indo-European temple, fire temple. Okay, cool. So. Uh, there's the seven labors. There's also a, a great tragedy that he's associated with, maybe one of the great tragedies in Iranian literature called Rostam and Sohrab, where he inadvertently uh, slays his own son. Right. Also like Hercules. Does Hercules do that too? 
Yeah, like he was in like some sort of poison or drunk or stupor, and then accidentally, like he was, or he's like enchanted by uh, maybe Hera, who who never liked him, uh, and and accidentally killed his whole family. Wow. Yeah. In fact, Matthew Arnold again, um, and I wonder if this is where you heard of Rostam or if you had heard of him um, from the actual Persian source. Uh, wrote a, a poem in the English language called. Instead of Rostam and Sohrab and Rostam, which is based on, it's not a direct translation, but it's based on the same story, the tragedy of Rostam and Sohrab. It, it definitely sounds familiar. No, I think the, I think I sold them the horse. Right, right. Okay, great. Then uh, there's also, I'll leave you one other final story about Rostam before we move on from him. Rostam uh, lives uh, to be a ripe old age of, I don't know, six or seven hundred years, if I remember correctly. But when he is an older man, still a hero, still Rustam, but, you know, an older Rustam, um, suddenly there is an episode in the Shahnameh where the Shah, the Shah at the time, tasks uh, a great new uh, Zoroastrian prince named Esfandiar with going out and bringing Rustam in, as they say, like bringing him to heel, because Rustam has just been... Um, he's not been following orders and it's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's in one of those moods, right? right? Where he's not listening to what the Shah wants and the Shah has had enough of it. Espandiar is, a uh, uh, has the magical powers where he is considered basically impregnable. He's, he's invincible, uh, very much like Achilles. Okay. And so Espandiar goes out reluctantly because he doesn't, he respects the old Rostam. He doesn't want to do it, but he's tasked by the Shah to go and bring in Rostam. So he goes out and says, Rostam, this is what I have to do. Would you please come in without us having to fight? And Rostam says, no, how dare you speak to me that way? After all, I've done for the kingdom all these times. How many times have I saved Iran in the kingdom? You're talking to me, you foolish young man. And, um, so they have a battle, and Rostam is unable to defeat, amazingly, he's unable to defeat this invincible new prince. Right. And he goes and prays to Zal, the magical, um, uh, to, to the Seymour, actually, sorry, the magical bird. And Seymour says, look, this prince is invincible except for his eyes. So just like, uh, you know, um, uh, Achilles had the... The heel, right, where he was dipped. With it wasn't dipped because he had to hold them by the heel, right? Uh, Esfandiar's vulnerability are his eyes. So, Zemor uh, uh, creates a special uh, instructs Rostam to create a special two headed arrow from the you know wood of a special tamarind tree dipped in a special uh, formulation. And Rostam uses it and kills Esfandiar the next time around. Oh, that's not nice. And this whole, this whole episode is considered by those who interpret these things to be re really uh, a personification of a battle, a cultural battle that was going on in the Iranian world between the old school Scythian Rostam, because Rostam is from Sistan, he's, he's considered to be from the Scythian side of the Iranian family, pre-Zoroastrian, pagan, Mithraic, kind of Aryan cowboy, right? Right. And Esfandiar represents the new Zoroastrian, civilized, urban kind of culture um, that the Iranians became when they when they 
moved to Mesopotamia, right? And so it, it, it sort of reminds me of the tradition we have in, in, in cinema of the Western, where the New East, the railroad and civilization is encroaching on this, this the cowboy figure, uh, who you know is doomed, his days are numbered, but wants to maintain his independence to the last moment that he can. Rostam is sort of that that Indo-European cowboy figure. Right, he's, he's John Dutton in, in Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know who Indiar is, or but, uh, you know, but, but we get the idea. Yeah, you get the idea. And, and so it's very interesting to see these two characters kind of representing the Zoroastrian side and the pre-Zoroastrian pagan Indo-European wild man sort of ethos of the of the Scythian side. Right, and he, and he had a and he had a blind the 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 new one to get over on. He had to blind him. That's the only way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, so the the similarities obviously there the the obvious similarities to Hercules that you also mentioned, but it's also um, been said that there are similarities to other Indo-European heroes like in the in the Irish tradition um, there's a hero called I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it Cuchulain and um, also in the German tradition there's a, a story of Hildebrandslied if I'm pronouncing that correctly so uh, and that's very similar to the Rostam and Sohrab tragedy where he slays his son yeah indeed yeah those are uh, those Irish names it's they, they are almost never pronounced the way that they look Stand strong and tall, season after season. America's Alfalfa is your source for the only traffic-tested alfalfa seed and the Harvextra and Roundup Ready alfalfa technologies you need. Selected for yield and quality characteristics, our varieties produce agronomically sound and disease and pest-resistant alfalfa that can work across the country. Dream fields and yields start here in the United States of Alfalfa. Contact your America's Alfalfa seed dealer for more information. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. Yeah, no, I'm sure I'm, I'm butchering it, but um, uh, it, it, the coup is spelled C-U, so if somebody wants to, to look it up. I, I wish I could give you the correct pronunciation, but I cannot. But <laughs> but luckily, I, I, I have booked a, a guest on uh, Celtic Tal, so uh, oh, hopefully I'll remember to ask him about that if it uh, doesn't come up. So uh, that, that's coming up. Yeah, that's right, folks. Garden of Doom, we, we, we've got you covered. When we, when we come up with questions, sometimes uh, we already have the answers booked, or we're going to get you the answers. <laughs> Indeed, the audience helps. So we have a couple more here. Um, the next figure that I want to talk about is Kave Ahangar, or Kave the Blacksmith. Um, and he uh, uh, fights uh, a, a character called Zag, the Demon King. Okay. So who's Zag? Zag the Demon King is a incarnation of uh, basically Ajidahaka, that dragon, a personification of him okay. in the Shahnameh. Um, he has a snake growing out of each shoulder. Why not? And and so Zach uh, has to you know has to feed these snakes. Uh, it sort of reminds me of uh, like a uh, interpretation of what a what a uh, addiction would be, right? Yeah, interesting. 
And these snakes need to be fed. And so for years, he's had two innocent children kidnapped from the population that he governs and killed. And their brains are fed to the snakes to keep the snakes <laughs> from devouring his own head. Okay. Fed each morning, they'll eat his own brain. Talk about a, a you know a curse! Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 outrageous. He's he's and king of the demons. You say it sounds, he's king of the demons. It sounds like he's on the lower rung of demons. He's fighting himself. Yeah. No. Exactly. No. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's uh. Well, that's that tells you something psychologically that even the most powerful have their own demons. <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. So, Coffee the blacksmith uh, and Fairy Dune. Uh, uh, are the heroes who finally end this this guy's reign? Uh, they storm. They they uh, what? In fact, Kave the uh, the blacksmith has three of his own children were killed by Zach, uh, and their brains fed to these snakes. Yeah, well, there's so the motivation. A, yeah, motivation. He leads a popular uprising. People have had enough. They storm the mountaintop castle that Zach lives in, and uh, slay Zach. Uh, Kave has sort of become a symbol of Iranian resistance against foreigners uh, in general, but specifically against uh, Muslim invaders. I and feel like day, the, 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 the common but strong blacksmith turning into hero of the people, uh, you know, has sort of become a trope, though I can't picture any of the stories necessarily, but I, I feel like I've seen this before, you know? Yeah, no, no, look, it's, it's common again in the, in the European tradition. Um, the blacksmith is sort of associated with a magician figure in a way, because it's a bit of, it's not too dissimilar from alchemy. Right. What they're doing, right? Right. You turn them into... And that's, that's what I've read. Right. Uh, yeah. And also they'd be strong, you know, they're, they're, they're hammering that thing and they got the, they're in the, they, you know, get calloused from all the heat that they're used to the fire and all of that stuff. And they, you know, they, they got, they got to wash all the soot off every day, but yeah, they're the big armed, the, the big armed, big, you know, man working hard for his money. Yeah, sort of archetypal manly man, right? <laughs> right, but not noble, but but provides things to the nobles. So he's sort of like on that that middle ground where you know the That's nobility right. needs him, but but he's not noble. That's right. He's from the people more, more, uh, more working class, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's such a thing uh, in Iranian culture, very famous, called the derafshikaviani. Uh, let me put you on, on hold for one second here. Sorry right. about this. Well, emergency services are circling over there. Yeah. The Darafsha Kaviani or the Kaviani Standard. Uh, are you back on? I Can am. You hear me? I never left. Okay. <laughs> I'm back on. Yes. All right. The, the Kaviani Standard or flag, um, which is actually uh, originally was uh, his own modest blacksmith's apron. And uh, it, it now is associated with the whole concept of resistance. And in fact, you were talking about the demonstrations in Iran going on today. Um, you will see if you look at any of the footage, you may not pick up on it because you're not, you weren't familiar with it, but oftentimes in the demonstrations, particularly outside Iran, because they can do it more safely, um, demonstrators unfurl a giant Kaviani flag, which goes back to this blacksmith's apron. So you see how much these stories are still within the, the the psyche of the people. Well, I'm going to look for that now. What's that? I'm going to look for that going forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I can send you something after the show. The Kaviani standard, and it's it sort of looks like a cross, but it 
you can also tell that it's very sort of primitive and, and blacksmithy and apron-like. Oh, very cool. So uh, we've talked about a lot of men, um, but don't forget that uh, in at least in the ancient Iranian tradition, women were very powerful. And That's right. In fact, um, uh, the, the quintessential example of that are the Amazons, which are, are thought to be uh, mostly based on the, the Iranian Sarmatians in the Balkans. And um, the Greeks would often make fun, you know, of the Persians for being sort of, what would they say, you know, under the thumb of their women. <laughs> and the, 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 the women were, at, in court anyway, were controlling the men. And that might have something to do with the fact that the Greeks at that age, in that era were very patriarchal. And the Iranic tradition, at least particularly the North Iranic tradition, because they were less urban and more, you know, equestrian. Um, the when the women were um, equal to men, and they fought alongside men oftentimes. Maybe not quite the extreme version that's presented in the Amazon stories, but oftentimes they fought alongside the men, and that's probably where the stories come from. Yeah, they they found quite a number of of Scythian, and and even as far as you know, uh, further east of uh, warrior women buried with their their weapons, uh, as well as you know other other things as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. About, in fact, I was just reading about exactly that, that about a third of the graves that they've dug up so far, um, it, it, it's warrior women rather than men. Right. And also they, they had a, you know, even if they weren't, you know, on the front lines, they, they there was a lot of, they had to protect the, the, the village, the home. I don't know if the village is the right word, but the, the towns, the cities, homes. You know, they were Absolutely. subject to attack and flanks. And, you know, if, if, if the attack went wrong and there was a retreat. And so they were absolutely uh, uh, multitasking. The Sarmatian uh, Aaronic women, particularly, and the Scythians, keep in mind, because these were equestrian people where, who used the bow and arrow as a primary way of, of warfare, that if you're using a bow and arrow, a woman can be just as good, even if you... She may not have quite the same upper body strength as, as a male, uh, although some would. Uh, you know, it, it, it almost equals things out. That's right. We, we, so, we saw Wonder were, Woman, they, we know. They were, say it again? We saw Wonder Woman, we know. Exactly, Wonder Woman. In fact, I think we talked about this in one of the last conversations. There was a BBC article recently um, that very, uh, I was very happy to read that it clearly. Um, brought back the Wonder Woman legend to the Sarmatians. Yeah. I mean, the, listen, the bow, the bow does most of the, the work. I mean, you know, the, the, I guess right. the, 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 you know, the, the, it's not string. It would be what sinew or something. That would be the, the, the string part of it. But, uh, you know, yes, you have to build up strength to pull it back, but people build up strength. Exactly. And so, you know, this tradition of, of women warriors uh, is exemplified in one particular hero named Gordaf Farid. Uh, Gordaf Farid, a female Iranian champion and warrior who fought against Sohrab, the son of Rostam, mm -hmm. who at the time was a commander of the Turanian army. The, the Turanians are to the Iranians kind of what the Trojans are to the Greeks. Oh, They're always awesome. fighting. I gotcha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's a, a little passage from the Shahnameh that describes her where it says um, that uh, when Gordaf Farid learned, oh, okay, so the, Gordaf, the situation is, uh, there was a fortress uh, that was, uh, an Iranian fortress that was under attack by these Turanians, 
And when Gordoff Harry learned that their leader had allowed himself to be taken in a cowardice way, she found his behavior so shameful that her rosy cheeks became as black as pitch with rage. And with not a moment's delay, she dressed herself in a knight's armor, gathered her hair beneath a steel war helmet, and rode out from the fortress like a lion eager for battle. She roared at the enemy ranks and declared, Bring on your warriors, your tried and tested chieftains. It's like Lagatha and so, Vikings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So don't mess with the with the Iranian warriors, particularly Gordalf That's right. And to this day, uh, she's a symbol of courage and strength for Iranian women, especially those fighting uh, the oppressive Islamic Republic uh, in Iran today, as uh, I think the whole world sees very clearly on their televisions uh, almost every day now. Wow, now now I don't regret bringing that up earlier because, uh, again, that wasn't really the topic, but it seems to have woven its way into a lot of the conversation anyway, naturally. So uh, it's, Absolutely. it's almost like well, I planned it, but I didn't. <laughs> Jeff, what's going on here is that you have a, a culture that, that has two eras, the pre-Islamic and the post-Islamic, and, and there's a bit of a schizophrenia, and there's a conflict between those two sides. And maybe you could say that during the Shah's time, uh, Iran leaned a little too heavily against the Islamic religious tradition, and that caused a backlash. Well, now Islam has, is causing its own backlash. <laughs> and um, so what you're seeing is, are moments in a large civilizational change that's occurring where the pre-Islamic Zoroastrian Indo-European culture is, is trying to reassert itself and come to the fore after having been not just, you know, symbolically, but militarily suppressed for centuries. Right. Well, what, one of the things that's probably common to all peoples is that there's extremists everywhere on both sides or whatever side you want there to be. And it takes an awful lot for the centrists to be mobilized into action. And, and probably from a historic view, it always seems like it's too late uh, or, you know, why to take them so long. Um, but that's because they're not extremists. You know, it's, it's yeah, what, no, that's right. Yeah. By definition, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, listen, I, I think these things cannot be resolved unless they, they actually come to respect each other in, to some extent and incorporate some elements of the other, right? Right. Otherwise, it's uh, uh, it'll be uh, a, a battle that, that will go on forever. So I, I'm really hoping, I'm not sure what exactly the solution is, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, whatever the solution is, it'll be without too much bloodshed and that it'll allow the uh, Iranian people, not just in Iran, but, you know, if, if that regime falls, you know the domino effect that it can have across the region. The entire against, world gets better. It, I mean, yeah, it's against, against political Islam. Uh, I have no problem with uh, anyone's religion. I mean, I have personal problems with all kinds of religions. That's, but I don't, I don't want to prevent them from having any religion. But I do want to make sure that they're not able to enforce it and impose it on others. Right. And, my... and we being, being I'm, I'm American, you're... You're a dual Canadian and American. I'm Canadian. Uh, well, I, I was born in Iran, but I, I'm also a Canadian citizen, and I live here as a as a as a permanent resident. So I'm you know I'm I'm at home 
sort of in or not at home in any of the countries. Right. So I, I will just say we in America, meaning me at this point. But uh, but uh, obviously Darius lives in America, so that was, you know we, we we have our we have our own you know flirtations with you know uh, threatened theocracy. So. Uh, you know, even yeah, if it, sure you know, and then, and people with theocratic, they really, they rarely think they are. They, they think that they are reasonable. They, you know, and, and that's, that's, you know, and that's sort of an eternal conflict. And well, anyway, I don't want to get into that yeah. too much, but uh, we certainly echo your thoughts no, for, you know, I, I, yeah. listen, I, I totally agree. Certainly we have a, uh, a dichotomy going on in our own culture here right now, for sure, between, between the left and the right and the, the Trumpsters and on and on. We won't get into that, but it's this is not, not anything new. Yeah, especially Here. today, January twenty twenty three. There's uh, there's a little January sixth going on in in Brazil right now, and um, you know it's oh interesting with Bolsonaro. Yeah, it's 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 so it's uh, American anti exceptionalism has uh, spread to well a different part of America, uh, if you want to be technical on this or accurate, but uh, let's just say United States anti-exceptionalism has spread to uh, the largest South American country as well. So swell. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, proud. It's amazing what's going on there between uh, Lula and Bolsonaro and, and the, the back and forth. I'd, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I'd love to say it's it's amazing, except that it's, they're just copying us. I mean, it's. it's just, I mean, this is this is not what's supposed to be meant by world leader. But again, this is well, like, you know, Garden of Doom reserves the right to meander in tall directions. But uh, I don't want to steal the thunder and have people remember. You know, we're talking about politics or whatever. Um, were was uh, I'm I'm sorry, I can't pronounce her name, but was our our heroine the the last hero on your list? Um, there's actually one last that okay. we'll end with, and that is. Arash Kamongir, um, my first name, Arash. Yes. Uh, the Bowman, the archer. Nice. And um, he, he is uh, an archer, <laughs> and he lays down his life by sort of infusing his arrow with his life force. Oh. Yeah. So uh, in the epic uh, uh, existential, you could say, battle between, again, the Iranians and the Turanians, very much like the Greeks and the Trojans, uh, over the so-called royal glory. Uh, in this episode, the Tehranian general, Afrasiab, has surrounded the forces of the righteous Iranian Shah, Manucher. And so to prevent further bloodshed, the sides come to an agreement that whatever land falls within the range of a bow shot or an arrow shot will be returned to the Iranians and the rest will fall to the Tehranians. And so, uh, at night, an angel, a Spenta Armaita, helps the Shah Manager to construct a special bow, a magical bow, an arrow. And Arash, who's a, a simple man uh, from, uh, uh, from a village nearby, is chosen to be the archer. And the next morning, Arash travels to the top of Mount Damavand, which is just outside Tehran. It's actually the highest volcano in Asia. Oh. Um, in Iran's Hyrconian forest, just south of the Caspian Sea. Uh, at the break of dawn, he lets loose the miraculous arrow, and the arrow travels, and it travels, and it travels from dawn till dusk. And when it finally lands, it splits a tree in the farthest reaches of Central Asia. So these Tehranians had thought, oh, well, how far can an arrow travel, right? Right. Um, the next morning... Um, 
when uh, he is Arash is sought out by the population, uh, <clears throat> it said that his body has simply vanished, and that all that remains are his clothes and his bow. So that actually reminds me a little bit of the penultimate Sky Luke Skywalker. A penultimate Star Wars film where Luke Skywalker's body disappears, mm. and all you see is his is his cloak. Yeah, that that's true. The the, the sacrifice, you know, for the the, the greater good, exactly. For the right. greater good, yeah. Yes. In contemporary uh, culture, um, Iranian culture, there uh, there's a Tirgon festival that's named uh, after this event. Um, it's still celebrated uh, throughout the Iranian world as. As either Tirgon or Tyr, Tyr actually meaning arrow. And by the way, Tyr is also etymologically related to the Indo-European cognate Thor, which you brought up before. So there's that. Oh, that's and of right. Course, yeah. uh, Arash is still a popular, very popular Iranian name, including my own first name, which um, I still use, and my friends and family know me primarily as Arash. Okay. Well, now I have to call you Arash. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. you go. You're, we're friends now. Well, Come on, uh, we're friends now. Yeah, I answer to many things. <laughs> a man of mystery. All right. Well, Arash, Darius, whatever you want to call yourself. Where, where can the, where can the folks find you? Find your stuff. We talked about the Persian version, obviously, but you have a very uh, robust Facebook presence. Uh, you are an author. Uh, so you have books. So, prop your stuff. Yeah. I'll end with uh, where they can find more on this mythology and also more on me. Perfect. If they're interested in finding more on on Persian and Neuronic mythology, uh, I would recommend, uh, first and foremost, the Shahnameh, the Book of Kings. There are many, many translations in all the major languages of the world, including English. Particularly, if I had to recommend one, it would be any translation, even a prose translation, because it's very hard to translate poetry. So you often have abridged prose translations by Dick Davis, and also there's a complete abridged, uh, unabridged version published by Columbia University uh, uh, Center for Iranian Studies uh, in Ironica. And uh, there's also a movie I would recommend um, that you can check out on IMDb called The Last Fiction. It's a very high-budget, high-production-value animated feature called The Last Fiction, which is about one of the stories from the Shahnameh, about the Kabe the blacksmith and uh, Zahak the demon king, who we just discussed. Mm -hmm. uh, really well-made animated feature that I highly recommend. Um, also, uh, uh, the last thing I'll recommend is is there's a there's a traveling theatrical production, sort of a shadow show slash puppet show that's been going around North America, Europe, and Asia called Feathers of Fire also uh, based on stories from the Shah Naman. And in fact, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, no less, uh, wrote, uh, he saw the production three times, he liked it so much, and he ended up writing a, a preamble to it. Oh, very nice. And as far as me, well, uh, I'm uh, easy, easy to find online. I have the Persian Version podcast on Anchor and multiple other platforms. On Facebook, you can look me up by my name, Darius Kamali, or Rosh Darius Kamali, and also under the Ariana Facebook group, which is all about Persian, Iranian, Iranic culture, history, anthropology, and now sometimes a little bit of politics.
Yes, and I will tell you that the Darius hosts on there uh, prodigiously. There's probably no less than five to eight posts that he puts on there days, uh, you know, on, on various things between art and history and characters and religion and current and whatever it is. So you know, if you're worried about a Facebook group that isn't active uh, as the administrator, he makes sure that it is active and there's plenty of content for you. He does much better than I do at Garden of Doom, which, uh, you know, I probably, I probably post, you know, one thing a day, you know, or one or two things a day tops. Um, By the way, Jeff, let me, uh, I, I forgot to plug my books. Like, I yeah, of course. Books? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, thanks for uh, giving me this opportunity. Yeah, during the pandemic, I've had a little bit of time on my um on my hands like a lot of people and so I actually put up put out uh, three books as well that are all available uh, certainly on Amazon and on KDP but now in some of the other retailers have picked them up as well like Barnes and Noble so if you look up my name uh, Arash Darius Kamali uh, on Amazon uh, it, they will all come up uh, the three titles are Dog Whistling Dixie Past the Graveyard uh, Mistakes of Identity and most recently, uh, uh, Sacred Cow Tartar. They're all available uh, basically any, anywhere uh, that you look up online. Uh, if you look it up on a different site than Amazon, they will purchase it from Amazon, so it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, just put in my name or the name in any of those books, and it'll lead you to the same place. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for uh, giving us this presentation on uh, mythology, heroes, folklore, whatever uh, folks want to call it, uh, intermeshed with history and current affairs and sort of tying the Indo-European roots to uh, present day. And folks, like I said, if you uh, like hearing Darius, uh, you, of course, can check out his podcast on the two shows he's done here before. And then the good news is we were already planning to do a future show on the Kurds. Uh, and now it looks like he's booked himself for a thousand and one uh, nights or, you know, uh, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to figure out the date on that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but I, I never want to overburden anyone or, you know, have the audience listen to the, the same person too often without you know well, there's occasional exceptions of course but anyway uh thanks again folks thanks for tuning in if you like the show please share it with your friends please give a rating and a review um garden of doom does have a facebook page not a group but it's a page but feel free to go there and you can uh certainly um uh, make comments there i i will I'm pretty interactive, and also if you want to find me on Twitter, it's at IcarusFellMD, and if you follow me, I'll follow you, and if you interact, I will, you know, I will almost certainly interact as long as you're not a complete meanie pants. Even though this is Garden of Doom, I, you know, it, it's, the rules are unilateral. Um, so, uh, anyway. So, thanks again to Darius, thanks for all listening, and we will hear from you again, or you'll hear from us next week in the Garden. Thank you, Jeff. It's been fun. Okay.